there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. If you want to learn more about how to turn an interest in social media, maybe the French language and puns into a dynamic career in marketing, then you are definitely going to want to stay tuned because my next guest was an international economics major and French minor in college and today is the head of marketing at a fast-growing, incredible online meditation company. But before I introduce you to Liz Korfmacher, I want to make sure that you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's our weekly newsletter that we send out on Monday mornings to give you an exclusive peek at the professionals we're going to be featuring that week. And it is super easy to sign up. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time4coffee.org and the sign-up box is right there on the homepage. Now, my caffeinistas, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my next guest is Liz Korfmacher, the head of marketing at Ziva Meditation, where she recently led the comprehensive national best-selling book launch of Emily Fletcher's new book, Stress Less, Accomplish More, which hit number seven on Amazon in week one. And you can bet this involved a methodical, strategic eight-month social, digital, email marketing, and content campaign led by, guess who? Yep, my next guest. Liz has spent the last decade since she graduated from the University of Richmond in 2008 working mostly in the social good space. Prior to joining Ziva, she was an Associate Director of Marketing at the Michael J. Fox Foundation for Parkinson's Research. And before that, she worked in B2B digital marketing at Source Media. We're going to be digging in to Liz's experience in the social good space and how she has used her BA in international economics to build a dynamic and fulfilling career. Liz, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated at six months pregnant and ready to go? <laughs> well, I had my decaf coffee, but I am ready to go. Awesome. I, I had to put that in there because <laughs> it is just amazing to think that you were involved in the launch of Emily Fletcher's Stress Less Accomplish More, which involved an eight-month kind of buildup and then execution of this campaign while you were pregnant. Mm-hmm. Yep. It was a real test of my energy and focus, but we did it. Wow. First and foremost, as regular T4C listeners may remember, I have already interviewed your boss, the incredibly talented founder of Ziva Meditation, Emily Fletcher, in 2018. And it is a wonderful episode. It's number 58. And I highly recommend those who haven't listened to it yet, check it out so you can learn more about the Ziva technique, which I happen to use every day. But the point that I wanted to make, Liz, is that it was because of the back-channel communications that you and I had as we coordinated setting up Emily's interview that I actually thought to myself, this woman, and by that I mean you, Liz, is a total go-getter, very professional, very 
buttoned up, as they say in the biz, and someone I would really like to feature on T4C so that our young listeners can benefit from your experience and expertise. Thank you so much, Andrea. That's so flattering. I really appreciate it. Well, it's true. It's (laughs) very, very true. So I would love to kick off our conversation by, first of all, congratulating you on your huge accomplishment and not just being six months pregnant, but the other baby that you helped as midwife to birth, Mm -hmm. stress less, accomplish more. And I would love to learn more about the incredible campaign that you built ahead of the launch of Stress Less Accomplish More. What was actually involved in building the campaign, Liz? Can you kind of walk us through the strategic framework that you developed and then how you filled it in? Sure. I mean, how much time do you have? Because it was a doozy. But I've joked, we had a spreadsheet that we used that had all different tabs with all of our strategies and everyone we were working with and all of those things. And now that it's over, I'd like to just wallpaper my house with it. (laughs) It is just massive. And I spend so much time in there, I might even be able to recite it. But we had really about a 15 pronged approach. 15 is an estimate, but there were many different aspects to what we did. So the first piece of it that I'll talk you through is how we at Ziva spoke to our own followers and our own email list and what we asked them to do. So Emily's book was published February 19th of this year, 2019, but we could start selling it for pre-order way back in the fall. So September, October. And what we did was we wanted to let people on our list know, look, this is available. It's not going to be there for you until February, but you can get your hands on it. You can pay for it and have it show up at your house the day that it's published. So we wanted to make that known and to give people an incentive to take that plunge and go grab that thing ahead of time when they couldn't actually get the physical book. We created about $350 worth of bonus material. So what that looked like in practice was we told our list, if you pre-order the book, pre-order it now, come back to this page, tell us where you ordered it, fill out this little form, and we'll send you a whole bunch of bonuses, which were... So in Emily's book, at the end of almost every chapter, there's a guided audio, guided visualization, and we put them all in audio. So people were able to download those. We had a really great PDF that gave people an insight into Emily's day, what her tips are for extraordinary performance, things like that, so that people could get those immediately and have that sense of instant gratification and like I've paid for something and I've gotten something and still have the knowledge that they have this great book coming their way in a couple months. Mm-hmm. So that was a major part of our strategy was that bonus strategy and telling our list and having people sign up for that and download all of those great resources. So that was a huge undertaking. We launched an entire website around that, which is called stresslessthebook.com if you want to go check it out and you can get all those free resources there. So that was really fun. It was like giving gifts to people. It was giving them more than what they paid for, really out of gratitude. And we tried to make it as generous as possible. So all the while that's going on. In addition, we were trying to drum up external buzz as well. So what that looked like was a PR strategy, an influencer strategy, an affiliate strategy. I'm sure that I'm forgetting some things. Oh, and we had an ambassador strategy, which meant we kind of asked our world people on our list, people who had learned to meditate with Emily already and said, are there any of you who are so interested in this book and have valued this practice so much that you're interested in helping us spread the word? 
And we got about 100 people who raised their hands and said yes. So what we did was we created a Facebook group for them, really nurtured them, really talked to them, heard about their experiences, heard why they were so interested and empowered them to spread the word. We gave them content they could post on social media. We gave them an email template they could send to their boss and say, you should buy this book for the whole company because it's changed my life. It's made me more productive. Things like that. So we really empowered that group to help us spread the word. And that was a very grassroots and organic way to do things. So that was a huge part of what we did. What else can I say? We shot a trailer for the book. So I don't know if you guys know this, but apparently now books get trailers just like movies get trailers. Go peek around. If there's a book coming out that you're interested in that's on pre-order, maybe Google the title and you'll find a trailer for it because a lot of books do that now. So I wrote a script. We shot a video on a two-day shoot, which was really fun. So we used that. That was a really great piece to be able to share with folks, one, organically from our own channels. And two, when we were doing our PR outreach, send it to those folks and say, look, this is what the book's about. We sent it to our ambassadors. We sent it to our affiliates. It's a really great way to introduce people to the concept of the book. Oh, the big one that I'm forgetting. How could I forget? Podcast (laughs) strategy. We booked Emily on about 45 podcasts. One of them happened to be yours. Podcasts are obviously so popular now. Here at Ziva, we all listen to so many of them and love them so much. But rather than going the podcast advertising route, we really wanted Emily to be able to be on podcasts and give her account of why she wrote the book, why it's so important, why it can help people. Like I said, our message was very generous. It was not so much about buy this book, we need you to buy it, we want to make a bestseller. So it was not about that. It was about if you read this book, and you do the practice that you learn inside, you'll receive X, Y, and Z benefits. And we've done this to give this to as many people as possible. So anyway, that is... I think a a pretty good summary of the strategy. And like you said, it took over eight months. It was not quick. It was a lot of hard work. Our whole team was involved. There were a lot of moving pieces. I know because I am part of the Ziva Meditation Facebook group and receive your emails that you also had Emily doing live Facebook Mm -hmm. readings of each chapter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So about, I actually wish I had realized it earlier. There are 13 chapters in the book. And I think 11 weeks before it came out, I had this idea. And I thought if I had only thought of it two weeks earlier, we could have had it line up perfectly with the chapters. But yes, we had her do Facebook Lives once a week about a chapter. And it was a really amazing way to get people interested in the content of the book and understand what they were going to get when they actually got it in their hands to read it. This all happens before the book even comes out. So it's a bit of a challenge to be telling people, you should go get this thing that you don't know what's inside it and we can't really tell you and you can't get a peek at it. So we did these lives to kind of let Emily talk through the concepts and answer people's questions about the topics of each chapter. Yeah, I thought that was a wonderful idea. Now, I know almost nothing about marketing. Full Mm -hmm. confession, I did work in PR for several years. And having been a journalist for 20 years was also engaging, obviously, with a lot of Mm -hmm. people who were in the PR industry. One of the things that I learned when I went over to the other side of the looking glass into the PR world is that it's really important to ask yourself certain questions at the beginning of any campaign or engagement. And that is, one, who is your audience? 
And two, what are the outcomes that you want to achieve? So what for you, Liz, what for you and Emily, were the outcomes that you explicitly laid out? Maybe you could just share a few of them. You obviously made it very high, number seven, on all of the books on Amazon Mm -hmm. within week one. I don't know if you had a particular number on the bestseller list that you wanted Mm -hmm. to reach. You also ended up generating a huge number of leads and there's obviously a revenue piece to it. Can you walk us through kind of what the outcomes were that you had identified at Mm -hmm. the beginning of your campaign that you wanted to achieve? Sure. So our audience that we had in mind was a more pragmatic So meditation is obviously becoming more and more popular. And there are often people we call early adopters to these kinds of things who are ready to jump right in and test things out. And then there are people who kind of hang back and are like, let me see if this really catches on. Let me see when a research study comes out and kind of wait until they feel like there's enough validation to go forward. So those folks were actually our audience for this book because the book really laid out meditation in terms of just made it very pragmatic. This is how it works. This is how you do it. This is what you can expect. So first of all, those were the people that we were going for. And one of the outcomes was that we wanted to reach people that we hadn't really reached. We reach a lot of coastal people. We have less people in the middle of the country. So that was one outcome. We didn't necessarily have a number attached to it, but that was our goal. Another goal was that we wanted to hit the New York Times bestsellers list and obviously wanted to be number one. Now, that is a very lofty goal. It's a very difficult thing to do. And the reason that we wanted to do it was because when you hit that list, you get even more press and even more attention. And our goal always is to have as many people meditating as possible. So all roads lead to (laughs) as many people meditating as possible. It was less of a kind of like ego centered goal and we want to be the best. It was more of what is the way we can make the biggest splash and get to as many people as possible. So during this process, I learned a whole lot about publishing and about the New York Times list and all those kinds of things. And I think a lot of people are surprised to learn that it's not only about book sales. It's actually a very editorial list that's kind of curated by I'm not sure who at the New York Times. So based on book sales, number of sales, we would have been number five on the list. We weren't chosen for the list. And because we had set our sights on that, that felt disappointing after the launch had happened. Now, the Amazon list wasn't even on our radar. But what wound up happening was the book climbed the charts so fast that week, I cannot even tell you how many times I laughed and hugged people and screamed and texted in the middle of the night and just had so much fun watching it just climb and climb and climb in ways that we did not imagine, did not expect. And in a way, that is based on number of sales. So in a way, we actually had more quote unquote control, which I think is an illusion in general, but we had quote unquote more control over that than the New York Times list anyway. So by the end of the launch, even with the disappointment of the New York Times list, we still felt really proud and were able to acknowledge that that outcome didn't make or break our launch. Even though it was a goal, it helped drive us the whole eight months. It helped us have a clear vision of where we wanted to go. But Mm -hmm. whether or not we achieved that goal was not the point. And it didn't define the success of the book launch. Yeah, absolutely. Were there any other outcomes that you wanted to achieve? 
So like I said, all roads lead to getting as many people to meditate as possible. And so through the book, we did want people to come into our world so we could teach them an even deeper form of the technique that we teach here. So what's taught in the book is very gentle. And then you can move on to our online course and then you can move on to our live course. So we did want people to come into the online course and we actually had our most successful month. So the book came out in February and then our most successful month ever in Ziva history was March. Direct relation. That was also very validating. Incredible. I have your resume in front of me. And I have to tell you, Liz, just kind of a PS, you do a terrific job of quantifying. And I really mean the numbers, Mm -hmm. what you have achieved and have achieved in other jobs prior to Ziva. But here at Ziva and most recently with the launch of Stress Less, Accomplish More, For example, you put in your resume that you generated 20,000 new leads. You had 20,000 book sales in month one. Ziva had its first six-figure day and seven-figure quarter. I mean, that's just (laughs) extraordinary. Yeah, Yeah, it is. Thank you for saying that too, because I tend to gloss over those things. It does feel good to say it and recognize that. Yep. What do you see, Liz, as being kind of the fundamentals, the 101 of developing an effective strategy around content and especially for the smaller organizations or businesses Mm -hmm. that don't have endless resources? So I think in terms of content strategy, like I think I mentioned earlier, authenticity is so important right now in marketing in general. People are really looking for it and really resonate with it. So in terms of tone and what's actually in the content, authenticity for sure. So I would say that one thing. And then the other piece that I think is really important is meeting people where they are. So know your audience know where they are on their journey, depending on what you're selling or what you're marketing. Where are they on their journey? How much do they know about what you're trying to give them? And what I love about being at Ziva and in the social good space is that I'm often trying to sell people something that's going to help them or do something for people that's going to help them. So it feels very authentic to me to help educate people and take them on a journey that leads them to say, oh, you know what? I really could use this. This is going to help me. It's worth it. So I'm going to dive in. So I think that meeting people where they are and taking them on the right journey is super, super important. And then in terms of types of content, we really do it all. But I think you mentioned people or companies that don't have a lot of resources. Video content today does not have to be expensive. You can shoot a video on your iPhone. The more authentic, the better. Instagram stories, I think, are so effective right now. I follow a number of bloggers who just kind of talk to their phone and just tell you about their day and what they've experienced and what they've tried. And those things are just super relatable, super effective. So I think recognizing that, especially for video, the quality doesn't have to be manicured. I don't want to say it doesn't have to be exceptional because it does. It can be lo-fi. And that's okay. Mm. And actually preferred in many instances now. So when you mentioned the importance of authenticity, it made me wonder because I'm sure you don't mean that marketing years ago was not authentic. 
But mm-hmm. can you give us a distinction or an example of what you mean by authentic today versus mm-hmm. the way it was done? Sure. So this makes me think of email marketing in particular. I think to your own inbox and emails that you get that you know are sales emails, whether it be from a retailer or an online company that's selling you a course or something like that. In the language, what I mean about being authentic is less that I don't know how else to describe it except that salesy language kind of rubs you the wrong way. You're like, I see you. You're trying to sell me something. I don't want it. It's sometimes the visceral reaction I have to some marketing language that doesn't speak to me as a person. It Mm. more speaks to, I'm trying to sell this to you. This is why you should buy it. Prices slashed, that kind of thing. Whereas what we really try to focus on at Diva in terms of our authentic voice is where are you on your journey? What are your pain points? What could help you? And speaking to that as me, the person, Liz, when I'm drafting an email, I imagine a person in my mind. So before I started meditating with Ziva, work in particular was a very big source of stress in my life. And I remember feeling stressed out and feeling tired, constantly getting sick, all of those kinds of things. And sometimes I even write to her, like past Liz, and talk to her about what she's going through what are you feeling? Doesn't necessarily have to be this way. And here are tools that I think can help you. So I think you're right. I'm not saying that other marketing is necessarily inauthentic, but there's a shift in tone that can really speak to people versus speaking to the masses. I think if you really zero in Mm. and speak authentically from what you think someone can get out of what you are trying to market or sell and speak to them about how it can help them in particular, it's a better way of communicating. It's almost like personalizing and tailoring it Mm -hmm. to an individual. Mm -hmm. Remembering you're speaking to people. Yeah. Even though it's through email or it's through social, there's people on the other end. And sometimes I think that can get forgotten or lost. Yeah. So Liz, let's pivot to what our all of your responsibilities today, not just with the launch of Stress Less, Accomplish More, but all of the different hats that you wear, all the different tasks that you need to lead as head of marketing at Ziva. Can you kind of paint the picture for us? Sure. Like I said, Ziva is a pretty small company. And what I love about that and have always loved about that in my career is it allows you to wear many hats and to develop many skills. And so right now, as the head of marketing, I'm overseeing the holistic marketing strategy, which includes everything from... There's a couple different ways to slice it, but customer acquisition and retention, email marketing, strategy and writing, digital advertising, social media campaign strategy. Those are all sort of like traditional marketing pieces. And then I also work on, I'm really interested right now in working on a corporate program, which will help us get Ziva into businesses. So you could go to work and your employer offers you Ziva as a benefit because it's a wellness product. And we find it helps with productivity and all kinds of things that are super helpful at work. So that's a passion project of mine. I also work on our give back program. So right now we donate 10% of our profits from our online program, which is our flagship program, to Project Drawdown, which is the most comprehensive plan ever proposed to battle climate change. And we're looking to diversify our give back program as well. Other major partnerships, affiliate marketing. And what do you mean by affiliate marketing? 
Sure. So especially in the wellness space, affiliate marketing is very common. And what this means is you basically enter into an agreement with another business and either agree to promote each other's product or one promotes the other or vice versa. It doesn't necessarily have to be a two-way street, but you offer the other a commission on sales generated that they generate for you. So for example, there is a skincare company that we love called Anne Marie Gianni. They produce all natural skincare products and they're really incredible. Emily uses them. I use them. Our set, we all love them, right? So we feel very authentically, just to keep with our, our theme, that it's a really great product and we think people should know about it. Cherry on top is they offer affiliate commissions. So whenever we talk about it, in any of our communications or share Emily's skincare routine, which people have asked us about, or put out a holiday gift list, things like that. We include a link, an affiliate link. And if anyone from our list uses that link to purchase Anne-Marie Gianni product, we get a small commission on that. And it goes both ways. So it's basically utilizing other platforms, other companies, lists and reach and influence to help get more awareness of your own brand. And it's, it can be reciprocal. So like I said, we really focus affiliate marketing on... We promote brands that we believe in and use and have tested and feel authentically about. And yeah, we ask others to do the same for us. So most times, people who are affiliates for us have used Diva Online. We've given it to their staff. They've seen benefits from it and they can speak authentically about it. Can you take us into a typical day outside mm-hmm. of the launch of Emily's book? Mm-hmm. And I also didn't ask you how large of a team you have working yeah. with you. Yeah. So we are a small but mighty team. We are five full-time employees and there are two on the marketing team, myself included. And we have four or five part-time customer service folks who are truly amazing and are just sort of like the backbone of our programs because whenever people have questions, that team is just super incredible. And then of course, we use other kinds of contractors as needed for PR. We did that and sometimes web design, things like And then in terms of a typical day, I really don't have a typical day. (laughs) (laughs) Given the range of the responsibilities that I have, they vary. I mostly work remotely. We come into the Ziva studio once a week and all kind of get together and work through things together and, and plan. What I usually do at home is I try to keep a running list of my priorities, which can be anything from creative writing, developing assets for advertising, brainstorming with a teammate, reviewing web assets, corresponding with partners, all different kinds of things. But what I will say is at Ziva, one of the things that we do is prioritize creative work first. So in a day, if I have to do a bunch of writing, I'm going to do that first because it'll help me take advantage of my creative energy. And it's typically the projects and the tasks that feel daunting and overwhelming that you don't want to put off, even though it's so tempting. Because the later and later you push it, there's more and more pressure and your mental resources are depleted. So we try to do that. That's something that we all do. And the other thing I'll say about a working day is I try not to spend too much time in my inbox, which again is very tempting because it feels like you're getting a lot done when you're just clicking send and, and filing emails away. But often it's just an illusion of productivity. So I try to prioritize actual doing and implementing (laughs) over answering emails. Yeah. I'm actually thinking 
to the espresso shots episode that we already recorded and will be dropping after this episode. And I believe, Liz, you said one of the qualities that you look for in the young people that you hire is the ability to focus and being mm-hmm. detail oriented. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I certainly do. And one of the things at Ziva also is that everyone on staff meditates, which makes that a whole lot easier because it does give you a lot more focus and allows you to be more productive. I do really want to find people who are detail-oriented, who are self-starters, because in a company this small, you've got to be doing things that nobody has asked you to do. Yeah. And if you don't know how to do it, Google it. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, For sure. So we should tell our listeners, Liz, that you actually started working at Ziva or with Ziva, I should say, as a freelance marketing and content consultant. You mentioned some of the Mm -hmm. consultants that you work with now in your Mm -hmm. current capacity. And you did that for about two and a half years. You had other clients along with Ziva. Why did you make the decision to go in-house? And what do you think are the upsides and downsides of being a consultant versus being kind of an in-house counsel? Mm, Yeah. So there's a lot of pros and cons to both. There were reasons that I really loved both. So yeah, in between the Michael J. Fox Foundation and being full-time at Ziva, I was consulting. I had my own company, very small company. It was just me. And I had small business clients. Ziva was one of them. And what I really loved about being a consultant is it was all on my terms. I could do everything on my own schedule. Of course, I answered to clients and I did what they asked me to do. But as long as I was getting my work done on time, I really had the freedom to do whatever I wanted. I would go walk to a coffee shop, enjoy my day, work outside. And it was really fun to see kind of under the hood of all different companies at the same time. And I think the most I ever had on my plate at once was like four, maybe. And so what wound up happening is I just vibed really well with Emily and with Ziva. And it was the work that I wanted to do the most. So over time, I was working with them more and more and more and more. And I think it was actually the book launch. When I knew it was coming up, Emily had been writing the book for a while. And then as it was getting to the point where we needed to start putting the strategy in place, I came to her and was like, I want to do this. I want to man this ship. I want to take this on. I can do this for you. It's going to be amazing. And she was like, well, okay. <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> so, so that was the turning point for me. And one of the things about being in-house that I really... There's two things that I really love. The first is that with multiple clients... I was shifting my energy or my focus so frequently that I felt I was losing productivity. So I would be focused on a Ziva project and I would shift attention to something else and I would shift attention to something else. And for me personally, that was not a great return on time investment. I was spending too much time refocusing and getting out of one headspace and into another. So coming in-house, it feels really nice to be able to focus on quote-unquote one thing. Obviously, I have a ton of responsibilities, but it's one mission, one company, one brand. So that I really like. I know I said two, but I think I've just forgotten the other thing. <laughs> No worries. <laughs> so there's one. So I mentioned in the introduction that you were an international economics major at the University of Richmond. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated, Liz? And Do you think it was a disadvantage or maybe an asset that you didn't study marketing in school? So when I graduated, I did not know what I was going to do with my degree. And I really approached my studies from interest versus 
focusing on a job that I would get later. But that being said, at the end of my senior year, I was like, well, I don't know who's going to hire an economics major. And I didn't really know what to do with that degree. But I had been very passionate in my studies about sustainable development, which is the idea of meeting human development needs while protecting our planet and natural resources and microfinance which supports the poor, especially women, especially, and in developing countries with small loans that help them establish their own sustainable income. So both of those things were not so business focused. They were economic related, but they were in that social good space, which I really didn't realize at the time. Looking back, I now see the theme for me has been in the social good space. And I really love being in a mission driven work environment. But anyway, no, I didn't know what to do with that degree. And I didn't know what was going to be available to me. And I just felt a lot of pressure to find a job. I had to support my own rent and I had to start paying off student loans. So I kind of just found a job and, and that was that. And then to answer your second part of the question, I can't say whether or not it would have been better for me to have studied marketing in school, but I do think it has been an asset for me to not have studied it because I learned so much on the job in multiple jobs. And like I said before, that life experience, that real experience of doing rather than necessarily taking notes and learning conceptually was for me really, really beneficial. I think I learned best that way. I learned best by just like having to dive in and do it, see how it goes. And also in marketing, you get that real time feedback. Did it work or not? So (laughs) yeah. And actually, with many of my guests, all of my guests, I offer them the opportunity to suggest topics or questions that they would like me to ask them. And one of the topics that you recommended, Liz, and I just think this is a perfect time to weave it in, is struggling with the imposter syndrome. Because I can imagine that because you were learning on the job how to be a marketer, that you may have experienced some of those feelings. So how did you power through? Truth be told, I think I still have it. I mean, you had to read me my own accomplishments for my resume. So yes, for sure. The reason that I wanted to bring it up is because I think so many people have these feelings. So imposter syndrome is feeling like I would be at work in one of my previous jobs and feel like, you know what, they're going to find me out. I'm not that good at what I do. I don't really know what I'm talking about. My ideas aren't that great. And that's all just negative self-talk and self-doubt. And I think that's a good insight that I don't have the actual typical or traditional background to support the fact that I'm a marketing professional. As I get older and I have more and more experience and more and more successes, I do feel more confident in those abilities. But yeah, I think writing down your accomplishments and really paying attention to as good things happen, as successes happen, I would just keep a list. Just like write them down. And if you're not feeling great about it one day, go read it. And if next time you're ready to apply for a new job, you have that list there and you can be like, you know what, I do deserve a raise or I do deserve a promotion or I do deserve a better job or whatever it is. So I think it's really important to remind yourself of those accomplishments. And I can't even believe I'm saying this. I feel like I'm becoming my mother because she always used to say this to me. She used to always say, take pride in your accomplishments. And I would roll my eyes and be like, whatever. But it's true. And I think when you have that confidence, you can do better work and realize what you deserve and you're willing to ask for more. So yeah, I think in terms of powering through, it's just been experience and remembering to look back and keep a list of what those accomplishments have been and referring to it once in a while and recognizing negative self-talk when you hear it in your head and saying, is that really true or am I self-sabotaging and why? (laughs) And doing a little digging there. Yeah. And thank you so much for sharing that and 
being so honest about the fact that you may still be suffering from this, despite the fact that you just fucking knocked it out of the park, (laughs) Liz. Like, as I said to you before we started this interview, like we're talking about the bases were loaded and Liz Korfmacher stepped to the plate and hit a home run. <laughs> it makes me embarrassed just hearing you say. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe that was a little corny, yeah. but whatever. You get the idea. Yeah, you did. Yeah. You won the game, and I know it's a team sport. And you obviously have an amazing coach or star hitter, whatever you want to call her, in in Emily Fletcher. But wow, does she have an amazing teammate? As I'm sure so many of you at Ziva are. Yeah, we do have a really, really amazing team. It's one of the things that we're most proud of and speaks again to when you're looking for a job and you're being hired. It's for us, it's so much about fit and working together. And when you have the right people in the room together, it's an exponential return. It's greater than the sum of its parts. So, Liz, what advice do you have for our young listeners who may still be in school or may be in their first couple of jobs about where to start and how to start acquiring the skills that they're going to need to be badass young marketers? I would seek out any opportunity to learn that you can. And the great thing now is that there are so many amazing courses that you can take online. Udemy, for example, has all kinds of courses that are... And they offer sales all the time. Get on their email list. They do like crazy sales. You can get amazing courses for less than $20 in things like any skills you're trying to develop. Seth Godin, who is a major marketing guru, has a course on Udemy about marketing philosophy. And you can take courses on... AdWords or on SEO or content marketing, all those kinds of things are available to you, whether it's Udemy or somewhere else. Here in New York, I don't know how they may have online classes, but there's a company called General Assembly that teaches all kinds of those classes as well. So my advice would really be if you want to acquire the skills and you don't feel like you're getting that experience where you are currently, go find them because they're there for you and rack them up put them on your resume and feel feel good about it. Excellent. I love that. So Liz, we're getting down to the end of the interview here. And this is a question that I try to ask all of my Time for Coffee guests. And that is for you to share a time in your professional life when you struggled. In my case, I was fired twice in my 40s. And it was incredibly tough. But I honestly believe in my core that it has helped me to develop a huge amount of grit, resilience, and empathy, among many other things that I probably can't even think of. And in both cases, I am so grateful it happened because it led me to a much richer experience. I don't necessarily mean monetarily, but just like Mm -hmm. being happier and having more balance in my life and feeling like I am living the life I should be living. Mm -hmm. What was that experience in your life that you could share with us? And honestly, a lesson you may have learned in the process. Sure. Yeah, there's definitely more than one. But so like I said, after college, I was 
I felt a lot of pressure to have a job and to have a good salary and to just be able to pay rent and move out of my mom's house and do all of those kinds of things. And so what I wound up doing was I took a job. It was one of the first ones that I got offered. I did not feel passionate about it, but I thought, here's a salary. It's in DC, which is where I wanted to live at the time. I'm just going to take it. So it was a sales associate position at Corporate Executive Board, which is a wonderful company. And the position was just not right for me. I wasn't passionate about it. I didn't like it. A million reasons why. And what wound up happening is the economic downturn in 2008 when I graduated. So it was really great timing. But I wound up getting laid off. Our entire department basically got laid off. And that was really devastating to me. It was my first job. And my first job experience about seven months in was to be laid off. The good thing about that experience in the moment was that all of my teammates were laid off too. So we kind of made the best of it together. We could share stories about finding a job and feeling upset and laughing about it and all those kinds of things. But the reality was I had rent to pay. I had two roommates who counted on me for my share of the rent. I had student loans. And I just set about looking for another job and tried to look into jobs that I could work on microfinance and things like that kind of returning back to my passion. And, and I didn't find a job. I didn't find one. And a couple months went by and I had to kind of throw in the towel and say, I have to move home. I can't afford to be here. I can't afford my loans. So I had no income. So I wound up leaving DC, leaving my friends, moving in with my mom in New Jersey. And what wound up happening from there is I started on a path that has taken me on this career for social good. I volunteered with a Leukemia and Lymphoma Society that summer. And then I wound up getting a job at the Cancer Research Institute, which is based in Manhattan, which does amazing work on cancer immunotherapy. And a lesson that I learned from it was really, I think, what I said before, which is everything happens for a reason. It wasn't about me. I wasn't a bad employee. I didn't deserve for something bad to happen. Things happen sometimes. And there's always something better waiting for you on the other side. So even though I was unemployed, I think for something like six months, it took me, you know, I had to move, I had to accept I couldn't do this on my own. All of those things led me on a greater path that's eventually taken me here where I am now. So I was tough, but I got through it and here I am. Oh, thank you so much mm-hmm. for sharing that, Liz. So final time for coffee question. If you could go back to college back to the University of Richmond and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? Mm. Well, given that I believe so strongly that everything happens as it should, uh, it's hard to say, but the one thing that I would change or tell myself to do differently would be to worry less. Everyone's different. This is just for me, but to worry less about the social scene and prioritize the schoolwork. And I don't even mean in terms of grades or working harder, but The schoolwork and what I learned wound up being so much more fulfilling to me than all of the time I spent worrying and being nervous and anxious about social scenes and parties and boyfriends and all those kinds of things. The schoolwork was really more fulfilling. So I would shift my focus just a little bit in that direction. Oh, that is wonderful Mm -hmm. wisdom and advice that you're offering. Liz, Thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. As I am sure our listeners could hear, you are such an accomplished, exceptional professional and person. And I wish you and your husband a beautiful birth of your baby in coming weeks. And 
just continued happiness. And I, I hesitate to say success because everybody defines success differently, but just so that you feel that you are always following your true need. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andrea. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.